0: dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order.
1: Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and
2: Shane Battier. find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Podcast Today, we're very lucky to have Travis Nicola, the executive director of Indie Reads, the organization that runs Indie Reads Books, where we do the actual live event, and he's the co-host and producer of The Art of the Matter, on WFYI. He's been doing that for several years. Actually, how I heard about it, everybody in town knows who Travis is. He was just the guy I talked to to help get the my live event happen. We have an interesting conversation today. and It doesn't sound like it's going to be. It is about administration, which is about the worst thing you can talk about. But I'm sitting here looking. I got a stack of books. I got to go through and pick out articles to put in another book. I got a big-ass book about the World's Fair that I have to let turn into an e-book. I have proofs I have to go through. I have my own book that's sitting in a big pile of shit behind me that hasn't been touched in weeks. And so Travis and I were talking about how you run things. And his, he, he's got a really interesting story that you're going to hear about. So right now you're going to hear a little bit about my story. Right? Which, there's no way to, I always, I have always, I spent my whole life complaining about shit not being done right. I, kinda, I love my mother. My mother is a very structured and organized person. Things are done in a certain way. And growing up, I hated that. Hated that. The story I always tell, we at Christmas one year, we had 12 days of Christmas plates. And they were in order. And I moved one to go sit next to one of my cousins. And that made my mother unhappy. That led to a fight. Um, So I ended up not having Christmas dinner with the family. I went and ate in the living room or something. I I was young. I threw a tantrum. But there was a structure in a way that things were supposed to be done, and I had not done them that way, and that had bothered my mom. And so when I was younger, that kind of stuff used to feel very confining. And then as I've gotten older, and now that I try to do things with lots of people and that you know, the downtown Riders Dam in Indianapolis is putting together lots of riders, like I've sort of realized the importance of a structure. And so a lot of my life is spent trying to figure that out. How do I get structure in such a way that, like, I can do the things that I want to do? And as it turns out, there's not really a career path that you can do that for. There's things like project management and in the arts world, there's like you know administration, but that's not really the kind of thing that I'm talking about, right? Like at the end of the, my wife says this all the time. My wife is an artist, um, or what you know, part of what she does is she's an artist. Uh, is that artists don't know how to value the things that are important, right? Like they're very bad at um, saying this is a skill and this is the thing that I do and this is how much it costs and, like, if you want me to do this, I'm not going to do it just for the love of the art. You're going to pay me for it. If I'm going to do it for the love of the art, I'm going to do it for myself. And so there is this back and forth that we have, and it's like a recurring theme as I – get older i'm 42 as i think about the how much time left i have to write and what i can really do in terms of making the kinds of stuff that i want to make is that this administrative part of this becomes important but i think what i know what makes travis interesting and i think what makes um gives me some flexibility in my world is that I am a writer who has learned to administer, right? I'm, I've learned to value the work that I do. And so when I work with other writers, I come at them like writers. Like I don't come at them as a publisher who's trying to make a profit, which is fine, but that's just not the thing that I do. It's not what, obviously it's not the thing that I do. And so figuring out ways to deal with the mountains of paperwork, and the books that I'm looking at and all this different stuff that I'm tinkering with while also finding time to create is really kind of a pain in my ass right now. I'm not doing a very good job at it. I'm spending way more time administering than I am writing. And so it was, it was to sit down with Travis and, and to hear somebody who really has interests that are everywhere in the arts and to, and to talk a little bit about the ways in which um, – how that developed and what that background looks like. There was some interesting – one interesting point that he that – he, I know he talked about was this sense of renaissance. Right. And that the people that are really good at their art form spend all of their time doing it. And then there's these other people that like administer it. And you hope, you know, in my case that I'm good at administering it as well. But the thing that I'm going back and forth on in my life is to is that what I want to do? Do I want I don't get a chance to create because all this other administration that I'm doing with these people. And I think this is the pull that artists have as they get older writers. I always tell my college writers, like you'll never have more time to write than you do right now. And the classic cliche is true that by the time they realize that, their lives will be going and they won't realize all the time that they have to write. Now's the time to write and fuck up and mess it up and screw up and do a bunch of things that you shouldn't do and mess up and experiment with your writing. Because at a certain point, you have to figure out how to make money with that, how to administer that. And you can go work for other people in magazines and newspapers, although increasingly those jobs are, you know, going away. Or you can go work at content creation companies, but that's a thing. And then you're just dealing with a different kind of administration, right? Like you're, because nobody, you don't create stuff all day and then want to come home and make more stuff. It's hard to do that because nobody wants to make mindless stuff at their job. So you actually spend time thinking about it. So this is everything that's swirling around in the office right now, right? Like everything as I am surrounded and look, I'm looking for things that I can throw away and not do, um, but the piles keep happening and the writing, there's never enough time for the writing. So today I actually went down to Indie Reads Books, met Travis down at Indie Reads Books and did our conversation, which I hope you enjoy. So the first time I met you mm-hmm. was at the Broad Ripple Art Fair, and my wife was like, okay, you're going to love Travis, <laughs> right? And she told me she, I think she and Dante, her business partner, had been on Art of the Matter, the, oh, yeah. the radio show. Um, so here, this is the question that I had, yeah. was how do you end up with a, a non-profit, it's a non-profit bookstore, mm-hmm. right, in a, in a literacy organization, mm-hmm. Um from a radio show. That was how I was introduced to you, right? He does this art. He does this radio show in Indianapolis right. about art. By the way, he has this other huge thing. So
2: They're parallel. They're yeah. parallel. I mean, there's... Um, you know, I've been doing the Art of the Matter since 2001 uh, for WFYI, but I've been doing radio off and on since I was... Well, since the early 90s, since I was in college. And uh, and I've always loved radio, and I've always loved doing that. And so you know, that's one thing that I've always been able to sort of do on the side. But my full-time gig for the past eight years has been executive director of Indie Reads, which is the adult literacy program. And so I joined Indie Reads uh, in the fall of 2006. And uh, at the time, the organization was uh, going through a lot of transition. It had been a program of the library for a long time and was being spun off from the library because of budget issues they were dealing with. And and uh, so the organization was becoming independent, and that's when I was hired on to sort of take the organization into that independent state. And um, and it's been a, a great, great run uh, working with Indie Reads and still love the organization and what I get to do there. And then uh, in the course of that, though, um, the short answer, we can talk a lot more about this, is that uh, – you know, I had always wanted to open a bookstore in Indianapolis since I moved here, and I uh, was sort of looking for different ways to figure out how to do that, and started coming up with a plan. And really, it was about 2009 when we first started talking about the idea of a uh, bookstore tied to the Indie Reads organization, and uh, and so there we are. But it's 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 taken a while to get here. So okay, before we
1: get before yeah. we get to the where you came from, why do you want to open a bookstore, right? Like, we're at the time when bookstores are going out of business. (laughs) Right. And so your idea was, we need a bookstore.
2: Yeah. So, you know, when I moved to Indianapolis in 96, uh, I was really surprised to find that there were so few bookstores in this community. And actually, after doing some research, found out that um, Indianapolis has uh, uh, the some of the fewest number of bookstores per capita of any major city. Really? Yeah. And always has, for whatever reason. it just, it's never been a big bookstore town. And, uh, you know, and, and I had loved working at a bookstore, independent bookstore, uh, when I was in college. And, uh, you know, always really enjoyed that and loved the physical presence of a yeah. bookstore. You know, first thing I do when I go on... You know, on a trip to a new town is, you know, find the art museum and find the bookstore. I find – I,
1: I look for the independent bookstores. I look for the – And find the baseball stadiums, so, right. you know. But those are but, easier to find than yeah, in the independent yeah, bookstores. Exactly. Like, when, when I went to – I think it was Treehugger Dance. It's either in Budapest or Prague. Hmm. Like, it's this famous bookstore that, like, expats in other – like, yeah. this other country. Like, so you get off the – you get off the plane and you immediately go to that bookstore mm-hmm. and i always look for that bookstore in town
2: exactly and you know and we didn't really have one here in no. Indianapolis. and uh, you know for a long long time i was thinking you know i wanted to have a bookstore on mass ave i've always you know since i moved here i've always been drawn to mass ave and and the chatterbox and other you know businesses up and down the avenue and had really looked into for a number of years sort of what it would take uh, looking you know working on a business plan to try to figure out what it would take to make a bookstore work on Mass Ave. And uh, and honestly the numbers kept on coming back pretty bad. And <laughs> you know, and this was even before, you know, Borders Closed right. and even before uh, e readers and all that stuff. But you're right, I mean the bookstore business has, has changed dramatically over the past twenty years. Right. And, you know, you look at, at you know huge bookstores that people thought would never close, like Borders. Um, you know, pretty much from my understanding the Main reason Barnes and Noble even stays in business is because um, of their textbook uh, stores. I mean, they have pretty much every textbook store at every major university yeah. in the country, and that's kind of what keeps them afloat. You know, and and so for a small store or even a bigger store like a Barnes and Noble or Borders to keep, compete with Amazon or the discount warehouses, you know, Sam's Club or whatever, is really tough. And you got to really find a niche. And uh, you know, and, and I never gave up hope on it, but I, it was always sort of a way like. Trying to figure out a way to make it work, yeah, and you know, and, and I'll tell you that that what really first kind of inspired me was I was um, uh, I remember you know thinking about Global Gifts, and, and they have a you know great location here on Mass 7. it's a not for profit organization, and and supports um, sustainable work and and living uh, from third world countries, creating goods, and you know they have some paid managers, but pretty much all their staff are volunteers. And I started thinking about that, like, you know, what if we could tie a bookstore into Indie Reads where we would have volunteers running the store and, uh, you know, we could, you know, focus on used books that were donated. Yep, yep. And, and that was really where the plan first started to sort of come about. And by 2009, I was thinking, okay, if we could, you know, I mean, the three most expensive things that there are in running a bookstore, the staff, the stock, and the space. And it was sort of like, okay, if we can you know, really, you know, reduce the amount that we spend on inventory because of donations and reduce the amount we spend on staffing because of volunteers, then, you know, solve the space, but maybe that's doable. Yeah. And uh, that's what we
1: found out. Were you looking at places? So I lived in San Francisco, right, Mm -hmm. where like Dave Eggers has the pirate shop and the... Mm -hmm. uh, Did you look at other models like that? Because I know like Inkwell down in Cincinnati, like there are spaces where there are, like, physical, like, Cincinnati has a physical location mm-hmm. where they do literacy outreach there for kids, but then mm-hmm. they go out and do, like, were you looking at those things, or was this really like a, here's kind of what we want to do here and not too concerned about?
2: No, I definitely definitely looked around a lot of different models and stuff, and I'll tell you, at the time that I really first started working on this, I wasn't finding any models of bookstores. Right. You know, I was was finding models of some other types of stores, or other types of programs, certainly, but I wasn't finding anything with a bookstore that was tied to a literacy organization or a bookstore run as a non for profit. Now that was again in two thousand nine. Here we are five years later, whatever. And um, since then, I've know a dozen or more, and some great examples. um, Great store in Chicago. that uh, it works in a similar way to Indie Reads books, except they support children's uh, literacy. There's a store in New York um, that is focused on AIDS awareness and education, but it's a bookstore. There's a bookstore in Boston where pretty much all the staff are, are kids just out of um, the juvenile detention center. Mm-hmm. And so they're working oh, on job training for good. them.
1: That's good.
2: You know, there's um, a, a number of different examples. And actually, one thing I'd really like to do, and I hope sometime in the next year or so, is put together, and maybe virtual or maybe physical, but some sort of symposium or sort of mini-conference of these different non for profit bookstores. Yeah. And and because I really think looking at the the bookstore model and the way things are changing, that the future of bookstores really is actually in not-for-profit bookstores. But, you know, it doesn't have to be tied to an adult literacy organization. But, you know, by having that way to reduce some of your costs and make it for a cause and tie it into the community – I think it's the best way for bookstores yeah. to survive.
1: Well, and this is such a community down here. I mean, I, as I talk to other writers around here, like, we, what we like is this open space where you can come and do stuff.
2: Absolutely. I'm pointing and
1: nobody's <laughs> right behind it. Um, okay, so let's, so I want to go, so where are you
2: from? So, uh, well, I grew up in Erie, Pennsylvania. At, and uh, mainly Pennsylvania, okay. uh, sort of hopped back and forth a lot between Erie and Penn State. Both my parents used to teach okay. at Penn State and then I ended up going to school there. And so what did you study? Uh, undergraduate was theater major with a dance minor and philosophy minor, and then I went back for a, uh, master's in art education with an emphasis in museum studies. Oh, yeah. I, so kind of all over the place. Yeah, yeah,
1: but but all over. Like I do a lot of stuff with actually museum studies kids um, mm-hmm. up at Ball State uh, with what we do with um, transmedia storytelling. But so but art was a thing. Like that was a th- art so. was always a thing. I, I mean
2: I started out thinking I was going to be a, an actor, and that's yeah. what I wanted. That's what I went to school for, and uh, had totally planned on that. Um, but then you know things sort of shift and change, and and. You know, I got really involved at Penn State in directing and producing and uh, was learning a lot about, you know, marketing shows and raising money for shows and, and – Realizing um, how awful that is and how there's no money anywhere. Well, you know, I mean, but I actually I mean, what I found was that was sort of my – where I, I started to have a lot of success actually. Yeah. and And – You know, and and now, you know, I've been working in the not-for-profit world now for, you know, almost 20 years. Yeah. Um, And that really started because of my experience at Penn State as far as sort of learning how to do all the things behind the scenes.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I – it is a thing that I have gotten to be good at because artists generally are very bad at um, valuing their work, right? Like, they they are very good at doing art. They're very good Mm -hmm. at, like, um, interacting. But they're very bad at telling people, like, this actually is a skill that costs money. This Mm -hmm. is a – um, my wife talks about this all the time. Like, you know, it comes they, up
2: a lot, sure. Yeah,
1: but it's it, it it is at least in my experience, I found that like writers, of the people that I hang out with are very bad at valuing what they do because mm-hmm. they just think like, "Well, it's just writing." Mm-hmm. Like, what's not right? And so, if you get good at that, there's actually a job for you forever <laughs> helping artists do that. So, how do you make a transition from theater? Like, you're in plays. Are you writing plays? Are you like, do you want it to be on stage? Like.
2: And so yeah, I mean through college so I was um uh had very little success at writing plays. Tried that, that didn't work out so well. <laughs> but uh it was directing plays, putting on plays, a lot of sort of experimental theater, yeah. uh some performance artwork, got very involved in doing that type of experimental theater that can brought together my interest in dance and theater and, and uh more sort of edgy stuff. And was it was just doing a lot of that. Uh-huh. And um and you know, at the time I was I was you know, I was learning. I was trying to figure out what it is I wanted to do. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it really wasn't until later. And I was also doing the radio show that I, I mentioned. Yeah. I um, was doing a radio show in college. that was sort of like a arts book talk show review type of thing. So you, like, thing.
1: jumped in. You were just, like, full art. Oh, uh, always. Always had been. And your parents, they were they were cool with that?
2: Oh, Yeah. Yeah, Both my parents were English teachers and writers and stuff. And, and yeah, I mean, my interests were always in the arts. So yeah. Never, you know, and... Uh,
1: my dad made me get a teaching degree because he thought, right. He's <laughs> like, you got to have a fallback. So you didn't have a fallback. Like, your parents didn't mm. say, like, oh, you need... They said, go do art. Go do your Not thing. Not at all.
2: Yeah. God, yeah how mean, great is that? Yeah. I mean, and they were very supportive of, of you know, what I was going to do. And, and they weren't sure where my career was going to go either. And I didn't know. And, but, you know, and that's what, you know, for me, college was a lot about, was trying to figure out, you know... And I remember it was an interesting point when I kind of realized that, you know what, as much as I loved acting and performing, maybe that wasn't what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, and what was that
1: moment? Like, what was there, a, were you on stage where you were like, oh, these people are doing different things than I am? No, I,
2: I, it was more um, that, uh, it wasn't like a specific moment on stage. It was more that, that I realized that there were all these other classes I wanted to take yeah. and all these other things I was interested in and that, um you know, a lot of the people that I knew who were some of the best actors and most successful and, and uh, ones who, in fact, have gone off to have great careers in, in theater, movies, or TV, um, you know, were so narrowly focused yeah. on just that. And and I realized that my interest really went a whole bunch of other places. Right. And Renaissance.
1: I, you were a Renaissance man. You wanted to know. And I didn't about want to everything. limit myself, yeah. you know. Yeah. So, when, what, what year was that? What year did you graduate?
2: So, I was uh, uh, at Penn State in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh-huh. And then. Uh, and then uh, did my master's work there in 94, 95.
1: So just a couple years old. You're like, what, 45? Yep. Yeah, so I'm 42, so mm-hmm. we're not saying. same. So you graduate, and then what do you – like, you have a hall you have, like, the art, the theater, the museum but, studies. you know,
2: I'll, actually, I'll go back and, and – because and, there was kind of one moment that really sort of shifted a lot of things for me. And and that was um, – you know, so I mentioned I you know, also danced, and I'd gotten very involved in dance. Yeah. And I uh, was – uh, in fact, was the first guy to graduate with a dance minor from Penn State's dance program nice. and stuff, which was cool. And, and uh, so back in 91, I think this was, um, There's a dance company still in existence today called the Bill T. Jones Dance Company uh, out of New York. And uh, the company was touring a piece around the country that they were mainly doing at universities but also at some other places. And it was called The Last Supper at Uncle Tom's Cabin, The Promised Land. <laughs> and it's a very, very long title for this, like, three-hour Dance, theater, performance event, and it was an incredible piece of theater, and they would bring in about um, 30 or so uh, local dancers in each community to be a part of the, uh, the show. And the company itself was really interesting, especially at the time they were known for um, dancers that all body types and styles and nice. ages. They had, you know, one guy who was very, very short, this sort of short, bald, muscular guy. They had another guy who was pushing maybe 350 pounds, who was a dancer. I mean, just big, enormous guy named Larry. There was an older couple in their seventies that were part of the company, you know, um, uh, lots of different, uh, body shapes and colors and genders and styles. And that was kind of what they were known for. So they, they would bring in local dancers for um, this piece, and um, I was part of that group and ended up becoming sort of the the captain of the local dancers, the dance captain for the local group. And we'd been rehearsing for maybe a month or so before the full company came in from New York, and uh, and Bill T. Jones um, wanted to spend some time with each of the dancers in the local company sort of just, you know, talking to us and whatever. And so, you know, when my time came up and, uh, you know, I met with them one-on-one. And, um, you know, and he's this, this uh, just incredibly muscular, beautiful, gorgeous, <laughs> big African-American man with this, like, great, you know, sort of James Earl Jones voice. <laughs> and, you know, and he's like, Travis, you know, do you want to be a dancer? You know, and, and, and I kind of looked at him and said, I don't know, you know. And I, I said, uh, you know, I, I love dance, I, but there's so many other things that I, that I really, you know, love. And this was also at the same time as... Uh, If you think back hard to uh, what was called the NEA 4 with four uh, artists who had been given NEA individual grants and then those grants were rescinded because of the content uh, of what uh, their work included upset Jesse Helms and it was a huge scandal at the time. And there's a lot of talk about the role of arts and Community and arts and society and public funding for the this arts. Was this like around Maplethorpe time or after that? Uh, this was right. Yeah, this was oh, sort of right around Maplethorpe. Exactly of
1: like what is arts and yeah,
2: and 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 you know what is the role of arts in the community and what's the role of public funding and and all this stuff and 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 so so Bill said to me, you know, if you want to be a professional dancer, you know, you either have to want it more than anybody else and want it more, you know, than than anything else you want, or you have to be. You know, exceptionally talented, and and preferably you're both. Right. You know, and and he looked at me and, and very frankly said, you know, clearly it's not what you you know it's not the only thing you want because there were right. you know I had a lot of other interests. Right. And then he said, um, and you're also not the best dancer, <laughs> right. you know, and, and which was true. And but you know it was well, kind well, of like have a good time, good luck. You know, and and he said, you know, <laughs> you know, professional dance is not going to be a career for you. Right. You know, and. He said, but, and, and this was, and I really took this start. He said, you know, you, you've become a leader, you know, here with this with this company in the community. He said, you know, it's clear to me in the interaction we had had at that point, uh, you know, that my passions went beyond that and that I had an interest in advocacy. Yeah. And he said, you know, he's like, in the arts, we need leaders like you who can stand up for us and articulate what it is that we're trying to do. And whether it's to politicians or the public or funders or what have you, he's like, that's what you should do. Yeah. And for me, that was – it had been something in the back of my mind for a long time. But when I heard him say it, it was like, oh, yeah. Yeah. That does kind of make sense, doesn't yeah. it? So that was a big shifting yeah. point for me. And
1: it's not like a job, right? Like, you can't go to college and say, I would like to be an advocate. Like, that's not a thing. Like, I feel like you just kind of have to fall into those things or you reach a yeah, point where it's you're like. Yeah,
2: tough. I mean, I mean, there are so many universities now. I mean, Butler has a great program in arts administration, yeah. which is, you know, similar but different. Um, but, you know, 20-plus years ago, there were no programs like that anywhere in the country. Right. But
1: what you do is not administer, right? Like, you – I mean, well, obviously, you are like, I an mean, I've done that. In the, here right but it is when people talk about you cuz they talk about you they it is a collection of artists from various backgrounds who talk about you talking about the arts, right? Mm-hmm. Are you advocating? And so
2: I see my major role is is to help build audiences, right? I mean, and that's what I do through art of the. But Matter. they
1: trust you, right? Like these artists in town trust you. They know I, that I you so, are yeah. one. of them. I'm telling you, they do. Yeah. I don't know them all, but we have secret meetings where you're not
2: invited. <laughs> I've heard about this,
1: right? And um, like that's a thing that I don't think you can learn in school. You can't. You have to be from the art world mm-hmm. or an artist of some kind. I think to have that trust. The extern, you can't just come in and say, "Well, I'm going to be the business person." But trust me, right? I'll support you, right? Because mm-hmm. that has not been traditionally. Out I think of that's worked. a really good point. Yeah, and so I think that you're in a unique. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you was because it is a unique position to be in. It's a unique position to get to, where you are both of the art world, but also an advocate for, but also a, one that I think both sides listen to, mm-hmm. right? Like you can raise money, and when people talk, they don't think like, "Oh." He doesn't have a plan, right? right like, he's right. doing it for the betterment of mankind. He's doing it for the betterment of mankind, and here's the business for which we will not lose all <laughs> of your money, right? Like, it's funny, but yeah. it's a skill that I think if you looked around, you might say not a lot of people know how to do that.
2: I, I think I've been very lucky to figure out how to make a career out of doing that, yeah. Yeah, and
1: there, but – I will say one, and you can speak to this better than i can I, I, I see a lot of folks in Indianapolis talking that way, like the cultural trail that's down here like mm-hmm. I feel like there's a there is a big group of artists artist minded people who are I've only been in Indiana for i think what five or six years, and like it feels like an art town to me.
2: I think you know it's it's been really interesting for me to see that evolve because I think there's so many creative people in this city, yeah, and are doing really innovative things that are not maybe you know traditional arts, but ways of making the town more culturally interesting. I and mean, you mentioned the cultural trail. and you know Brian Payne, who runs CICF, that was I mean his entire idea to create the cultural trail, Brian's background, I don't know if you know this, but he was a theater major also, really yeah. Um, you know, and so he comes to it also from a, you know, an arts and cultural background, as do, I think, many other people in this city who, you know, who, who approach things with maybe a little bit more uh, creativity than you would suspect.
1: I mean, it kind of makes sense, right? It's an interactive th- experience, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what you're trying to do is create sort of an audience out of nothing. Like, so having that theater background and improv or whatever it is going through those things gets you to think about that.
2: I think it's very true. And even even with the bookstore, I mean, so you mentioned earlier about the space we have for writers to, to read their work and for audiences. I mean, when we first started planning out this bookstore, I mean, I was very concerned about, you know, what it looked like, what it felt like, because in many ways it is like a theater space. Yeah. Both, you know, both when we have events, but even for just the customer coming in, yeah. I wanted it to feel like this was a very, very different type of space that, you know, I, I remember the first time I met with Nikki Sutton, the designer we worked with on the space, and, and we both sort of came to this point where we said we, we didn't know what the store was going to look like. We didn't even know the location of it. But we both knew that the store had to be a celebration of books and literacy. Right. And that everything we did had to be based around that idea yeah. of celebrating books and literacy all throughout the, the design yeah. and the feel and all that. Every
1: every author that I have talked to, that I've now brought about 25 of them down here. Just, mm-hmm. Like, they're all like, holy shit. Like, every bookstore should be like this. mm mm-hmm. um, if every Barnes and & Noble and Borders went out of business, obviously, borders it, <laughs> Barnes & like, I wouldn't miss it. I think one of the worst things that's happened is, like, the giant commodification of books. Oh, yeah. Um, because the joy of this space is – and Treehugger Dan's and these other sort of places is that you get to go in and – I can't sit down and don't feel like I have to buy something.
2: Absolutely. Right?
1: This is a space to
2: be. Yeah, this is – it's first and foremost a space, a community space yeah. that loves literacy and books. Right. You know, it happens to also be a bookstore. Right. It happens to have a space for events. But first and foremost, it's, you know, it's a space that we want people to use.
1: Yeah. So So you graduate – yeah. It's 95, 94, 95, somewhere around so there. So,
2: yeah, getting my, my master's in art education. And what do you do? Do you go teach? So, I really thought at the time that I was going to end up working at a museum. Uh-huh. Um, and that was really what I wanted to. I love museums. Yeah. And um, they're great. You know, and, and I wasn't sure if that was going to be in a education or marketing or what sort of capacity, yeah. but uh, fundraising. But I was looking at a lot of museum jobs, also other arts organizations. Um, I had an opportunity to teach English in Korea for a semester. Uh, so, I went to Seoul and taught at Seoul National National University and uh, as I was finishing up my thesis. And then when I got back and... So you did that while you were in graduate school? Yeah, yeah. Wow. It, was, it was kind of a way to make a little money while I was, you know, finishing writing my thesis. <laughs> and my thesis was actually on um, how art museums can use this new thing called the Internet uh, to uh, to basically reach new audiences for <laughs> education that and promotion. <laughs> yeah,
1: By and large, they haven't <laughs> read that yet. Well, I tell you, it was really... I
2: mean, in 94, 95... When, when I first started working on that, when I was working on that, um, and I ended up, as part of my, my master's thesis, created the first website for Penn State's Art Museum, the Palmer Museum. And at the time, there weren't any major universities that had um, uh, museums that had websites, and even most big museums didn't have websites yeah. at that point. So it was a really kind of cool project, and I, and I learned a lot about technology and museums and stuff through that, and um, was really thinking I was going to end up in California um, uh, had spent a lot of time talking with the people at um, the San Francisco Museum uh-huh. of Modern Art And kind of thought that's where I was going to land uh, I had a, a, That was
1: right up the street from Wired
2: I, Yeah, I worked, that's, that's right, a great place yeah, yeah, I
1: worked two blocks from there
2: You know, I, I had a good buddy who lived in Santa Barbara And I love Santa Barbara And um, uh, I ended up moving to Santa Barbara for a while And uh-huh. working at an art gallery And my thought was sort of like, okay, this you know, gives me you know I'm, I'm out in California, it gets me closer to where I thought I was going to be Right So and, why, why did you think you needed to be there? Uh, you know, I I, I, mean, I, was, I was out there for five years. I too. was looking at either coast, you know, yeah. and, and I spent a lot of time in New York when I was growing up and I love New York City. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, it, when I was interviewing with a number of different museums and stuff, there was more of a sense that the museums on the West Coast were more interested in new technologies than on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. And since that's what my thesis was, I was sort of looking at that. And even though I you know, would have you know, loved to have at the time you know, taken a job in, well, any job, but uh, you know, New York or Baltimore yeah. or what have you.
1: So you weren't thinking, like, this is the epicenter of art that I need to be in. It was more a they have interest to, for which I Yeah, it was more
2: in. about the museums, honestly, and, and yeah. sort of the, what museums were doing um, out there, whether it was S F SFMOMA or the Getty or other places that – you know, seemed to have a real interest in reaching audiences through technology, and and that was kind of what was driving me. Um, what year was it? Shit, I was it Wired in '99? Louis. So Were no, I just, was <laughs> I was in Santa Barbara in '96. Okay, so the first part of '96, and then I ended up basically running out of money. And uh, my California mom, one will do that. Yeah, yeah when well, Santa Barbara was crazy expensive, <laughs> yeah, right. you know, and uh, um, so I left the job at the gallery. My mom and dad had. Uh, moved to Indianapolis. My dad worked, uh, um, he re- recently retired, but he used to be a copy editor at the Star. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And um, so my parents had moved here in 95, and I had not seen them in about a year, and And they were like, why don't you come out here for a while, you know, and spend a week or two with us. I'm like, sure, that sounds good. You weren't like, oh, I don't really want to leave California to go to Indianapolis. No, I mean, I knew that California was kind of coming to an end just because I was, I mean, running out of money and seemed like running out of options. I needed to figure out something else. And I didn't know what that was. And um, so the idea of crashing with my parents for a couple weeks sounded like a decent idea. And I'd never been to Indianapolis and didn't really know a whole lot about it. So um, the week that I moved here was the same week that um, uh, like Circle City Mall opened and Victory Field opened and there was a lot of cool stuff going on. Yeah. I'm like, oh this is kinda of cool city, you know. And um, and you know, and so two weeks turned into a couple more weeks and a okay. couple more weeks and and so you know, I've been here ever since and I you know I, Really? I, so that two week stay went into oh, yeah. the move. Absolutely. That's crazy. Yeah. It, you know, and, and when I first moved here I Were had people a in d- California like, What are you doing? Not real. I mean, I mean, I, you know, I, like when
1: I left California, people thought I was insane. They thought I was crazy. They were like, "You're gonna be bored in the Midwest." I'm like, "I'm this where I'm from." You know,
2: I mean, the people that I knew out in California didn't know that I was necessarily moving. They just thought I was going for this. I thought you, you were know. busy, and then going, when they were right. gone. I just didn't come back. So yeah. you know, but uh, but yeah, but in my first real job that I got here was. Um, I was hired, uh, by Anna White, who ran Young Audiences at the time. Young Audiences is now called Arts for Learning. Uh, but she hired me as, um, well, I went through a lot of different titles there, but I think my first title was Assistant Director of Public Relations and Development. (laughs) And then, and it involved a lot of different things, but Young Audiences is a great organization that, um, works with professional artists, uh, your wife being one of them, uh, you Work in schools and do programs in schools and workshops and performances and such. And so I was doing. So
1: you're like administering that.
2: So I was doing fundraising and marketing and yeah. PR. Helping out with technology, and I mean that was what I trained for. But
1: know? had you done that in
2: California? No, I was working in art gallery in California, right. just selling arts. So, so this was the first time, like, a yeah. professional. This was world like the first real job where that actually applied
1: my degree. It was yeah. like,
2: yes, right, yeah, finally, it was can, great. Yeah. and that was a very good thing. I was at Young Audiences for about nine years, you yeah. know. and um, uh, and I learned so much working there, and and about everything from. You know, working with the media to working with donors and fundraising and, um, you know, and I just tried to learn everything I absolutely could. And, and Anna White was an incredible mentor to me yeah. uh, working under her. And uh, I learned so much. And then it got, kind of got to a point where Anna had retired and I was kind of ready to look for something new. And uh, fortunately, that was right about the time that uh, so Indy So that's how you Indy ended up with Reads. Indy Reads.
1: Yeah. So, like, artists must hate you because you are doing the thing that you want to do. Like, it sounds like you've gotten to do. There's been no struggle. Oh, no there like, was a lot of struggle along the other way. Other than, like, running out of money in California. Think, uh, running out of money in <laughs> yeah. California. I have done, uh, that. You that's know. actually pretty bad. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, Believe me, I've,
2: I've, I've been broke more often than I haven't been.
1: I tell my students a story. There were twice in Austin when I had less money in the bank than I could withdraw.
2: Like oh, yeah. It was, like, a withdrawal limit of right. like $5, and I had, it like, $1.80. Like, $1 less, 80, uh, like yeah. uh, shit, okay. <laughs> No, I used to, uh, you know, like when I, when I was out in in California. So I I was living in essentially a residential hotel, um, great view of the water f- from my room though. But um, you know, and every morning I'd I'd go down to um, this little deli called New Delhi that was run by an Indian guy, and always say, you know, welcome to New Delhi, you know, and stuff, and uh, you know, and he was he was great. And every morning, you know, he'd look at me and he'd go, Travis, you want the. Um, uh, the egg sandwich? And I would say, yes. And he's like, do you want that with cheese today? Because cheese was a dollar extra. Yeah. And i am like, not today. And he's like, oh, you didn't sell a painting yesterday. I'm like, nope. <laughs> you know, I'd go in there, and, and the next day, and he's like, cheese, like, I'll have cheese today. And he's like, oh, you sold a painting. I mean, it was, you know, I basically, when I was out in California, other than breakfast, lived on going to other gallery openings. Yeah. And parties and stuff where I could eat for free. Yeah. I spent more money on dry cleaning so I would have good clothes to go to the parties and the openings than I did on food, which kind of – it was a very strange situation. When I
1: got to Wired, uh, it was still at the time when um, those kind of companies would have lunch. Mm -hmm. And, like, we'd have salmon and stuff like that. So, like, you'd always, like – as I was young – at 26, I was going to graduate school at Berkeley, and, like, you took a bag. I like, could, like, take Oh, home. yeah. <laughs> Whatever. Oh, extra. Like, I'm oh, taking yeah. that home. Like, oh, yeah. live it Because I, I can't. I have a little baggie those.
2: in my pocket to put a little extra food yeah. in. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Because it was the,
1: I, coming from Ohio, which is, and I'd lived in Austin, but I got, the cost of living, I was absolutely astounded that anybody could ever make a living as, an, as a writer. Mm-hmm. I was shocked that I made enough money to barely get by. Yeah. Um, and then I understood why my dad made me get a teaching degree, although I don't know why he chose that one. Cause that's the only profession that you make less than you do <laughs> as a writer. Like it really is only people hate you more, right? Like, you, right, yeah. yeah, teaching is like the only profession that you don't want to do. Um, so I'm a teacher now, <laughs> which is what I do. So you take over, um, you take over any reads books mm-hmm. or any reads mm-hmm. bookstore doesn't exist. So, right. uh, so, like, how do you? What's the process that you go through as you sort of look at the organization and say, "Here's what we want to do with it." Like, it, it's literacy. That's the primary function of mm-hmm. what this all is. So, like, what does that look like to you guys?
2: So, so in terms of the organization itself, so Indie read So, when I when I took it over, it what had been great about the program being under the library is that for all the years it was under the library. The Indy Reads staff, and they were actually library employees, had developed an incredible system of how to train volunteers to work with adult students. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that was one of the reasons I was really excited about taking over Indy Reads because I knew the product was good. Yeah. I mean, it was already a national model for what other literacy organizations around the country were doing in terms of how they do their trainings, how they work with their students. So here was this, this program that for years under the library didn't have to do any fundraising didn't have to really do any marketing or outreach, just kind of did its thing and developed a phenomenal program. And now it's being spun off and uh, and and all of a sudden, you know, needed to start doing fundraising and marketing and all that stuff. And so it had great product but not the infrastructure for everything else. And so I came in. So you were like the perfect guy at the perfect time. Oh it was job. it was great. Yeah, it was absolutely great because you know, I came in and, and um basically rehired one staff member, Tom Miller, as our director of programs. And he's still there as our director of programs. And and he's the one who had the institutional knowledge about how the program ran. And so the first year of of the organization was Tom and I were the only staff. And that first year we served about, I think, 350 or so adults, uh, which was what the organization had done consistently Mm -hmm. annually every year before that. So, you know, so we were able to sort of, you know, stay on track. But then we've grown the program since then. So that was 2007 you know this now we have including the bookstore we've got 17 staff we've got two satellite offices one in Boone County one in Hendricks we've got the bookstore uh, last year we reached over 1600 adults so right. that's like five times so what does reach mean like what is that like so that it's it's a lot of different things but we do a lot of different programs now um, the one on one is the foundation of everything we've always done which is an adult who uh, meets with a the tutor. They usually meet maybe twice a week, sometimes once, uh, maybe for an hour or two each time, and you know they work one-on-one in in a, in a tutor mentoring capacity. Mm-hmm. Uh, to improve reading and writing skills. And and they may do that at our office, at the bookstore, at a coffee shop, at a church, at a library, wherever they do it. Is it a set curriculum or is it like it's, you it's, hire it or get educators to do it? Like, it's, it's set or, or to yes. some extent. Um, <laughs> I mean, all of our tutoring is really based on the needs of the students. So right. if we have a student who comes in, you know, and, and they really want to get their driver's license or they really want to be able to read to their kids or read a recipe, I mean, really kind of focus on what their own goals and needs are. So it's actionable, not like we want you to read class literature. Exactly. Like it is, how can we but help But that you being function? said, you know, so we, we focus on the students' goals, but then we do have very specific curriculum, mm-hmm. some that we've developed, some that we get from the National Pro Literacy Organization, yep. which does a lot of uh, research in this as well and, and has its own publishing house. And we sort of use a combination of that. And, and our staff really then works with the volunteer tutor to figure out what's sort of the best course of action for each individual student. Yeah, And that's most of what we do now. But since then, we've also added what we call literacy labs and the labs we now have I think 33 labs in operation around the city the labs are pretty much always in partnership with another organization Mm -hmm. so it may be an adult high school or maybe a community center or a GED class uh, which are now called HSE classes, uh, so or not n- called the GRE anymore? Uh, no, the GED is never. No, GED, no. I mean. Yep, sorry. Yep. No, that's right. So it's high school equivalency, uh, and they've done well. It, it's actually the GED. Indiana no longer uses the GED. Uh, um, yeah. They just uh, phased that out this past year and I switched to a new a new uh, test. So it's referred to as the HSE now. Gotcha. But um, so we work with a lot of other organizations where they will have their clients, uh, whether it's maybe they're working um, on studying for their HSE, or they're working. Uh, through programs, uh, we do a lot of programs through the jails, and so an organization already has their clients they're working with, and we go in there and provide additional assistance. Yeah, and with our volunteers, and that way we're able to also reach a lot more students through through those sure. methods. So uh, basically, you know, any student who's a one-on-one student we count as a student. Any student who it, uh, repeats coming to our labs uh, over the course of, like, 12 hours minimum over the course Your of the head. year we count as a student. We also do some small group classes, um, and, and then we also have uh, workshops in family literacy helping adults. These aren't workshops for kids. They're for parents. Sure. Parents who may be at risk, parents who may be not quite under... Yeah, Maybe yeah. not not quite understand the importance of reading to and with their kids. Mm-hmm. And so we do workshops for parents to help them uh, basically make reading more fun for both them and their kids. Yeah. And, uh, and put more importance upon it. And so we do a lot of programs like that. And then, of course, we have the bookstore now.
1: So, do you, so one of the things that I uh, am involved in outside of all this stuff is, like, working with the young boys that can't read. Mm-hmm. Just because the literacy, like, when I um, – when I go out and explain the problem to people, I tell them like the the gap with girls in science and boys in science is shrinking. It mm-hmm. was about the same. It's shrinking. The gap with boys in reading and girls with reading is actually getting bigger. In the programs, are you? Is it? Do you have? Is there like more men than women, or like do you see like is it just sort of like who you're dealing with mostly?
2: We're, we have slightly more women than men. Really? Um, you know, all of our students are eighteen and over. Yeah. Um, but it's pretty pretty equally divided. We have, you know, it means a small percentage difference. I think like 52 yeah, yeah. to 48 or something like yeah. that. Um, you know, about half of our students, maybe a little bit less than that, maybe about 40% now, um, are African American. Uh-huh. Uh, and then about maybe 20% or so are Hispanic, Latino. Um, and then the rest is, um, about maybe 20%, uh, Caucasian. And then you guys have a mix of everything else in yeah. there. Um, do they primarily students come to like,
1: because they got a thing that they need to do, like a well, license? Or? Well, it's
2: an interesting thing. I mean, we – you know, we have students who are 18. We have students who are 80 yeah. and, and everything in between. Um, most of them are uh, report – report as being from low-income households. Sure, sure. Sure. Um, And, you know, very few of them ever graduated from high school, and we certainly see some. It it, it is a really interesting thing what drives a student to come into the program. And we – one thing we hear frequently is that, um, you know, maybe they were uh, relying on someone else to take care of their banking for them because they couldn't Mm -hmm. really understand their banking and, you know, needed to have a checking account for whatever. And then they find out that uh, whoever it was that was taking care of their banking ripped them off, you know. and. Or, you know, we hear things about someone who has a job and just got promoted and the old job they didn't need to read and now they do. Yeah. And they're really terrified about telling their boss they can't read. Yeah. You know, we have people, uh, a lot of people are motivated because they've become parents. And they want to be able to help their kids with their homework. I would think that's a
1: lot of people that, like, yeah. suddenly you have your kids doing stuff and can't.
2: And they can't help them. Yeah, they don't want to
1: be able to do so. You know, I talked to the symphony about how do we how do we help grow their their audience. And one of the things that um, we always say is that people don't come to the symphony because they feel dumb, mm-hmm. right? Like you read like, oh, right. he was trained in Venice, and I'm like, I don't know what that means. Like, well, I don't want to go see that. And so, how do you then put those in, in, into things that people understand? Like, what trained in Venice means? Sure. Like how do we? And I I feel I don't know, but my sense just working with young boys and and having taught middle school and stuff like that and being trained to teach those kids. I just see that embarrassment and fear shuts them off at that early age. Oh, I yeah. just gotta think that gets like worse and worse and worse Don't, and
2: worse. So it's when terrifying. People, I mean, to not be able to read and and you know and to to admit. But have that to, to admit someone, it, right? No, it's not that's it's not a not very difficult thing
1: because you just think everybody should be able to
2: do this, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is a basic thing. Um, you know, we'll we'll have students who. Um, you know, have been able to successfully hide it from their spouse or their kids. Um, it's like addiction. I'm mean, a you know, recovering addict. Like, you, you learn can, to keep people. Yeah. I mean, it's not hard yeah. if you
1: spend all of your time doing that. Right. <laughs> exactly. And it takes up an enormous amount of time and effort. And psychic energy. It's yeah. just, like, it beats you down to the point where sure. it, like, makes you, it just, you know, you devalue everything about yourself because right. you can't do that thing. Yeah. Do you, I bet when you have successes that it's just, like...
2: Oh, it's awesome! I mean, it's so cool to see. You know, we do an event, a uh, student and tutor recognition event every fall, and that one's coming up soon. And and uh, you know, where we give out awards for like you know all stars and student year yeah. volunteers. You know, and have the students go up and tell their stories and share like you know what they've accomplished and where they've come from yeah. is amazing. It's well, I
1: have I told my dad when I was talking. You know, I'm 42 and like my writing is great and I love it. And I'm not I'm never going to be Hemingway, but I've reached a point in my life where helping my students be able to tell the stories mm-hmm. they want to in a better way, like. I get far more joy out of that than I get out of, like, writing is terrible. It's an awful process. But <laughs> taking somebody else through that and getting them to, like, just even those little tiny mini breaks. Taking you, them through that trouble yeah, process. <laughs> yeah, right. And I'm like, this shit's yours now, man. Like, whatever you do with it, it is. There is something about that that makes the art worthwhile, right? Because it's not... Art, to me, has never been a product. It's a process. Mm-hmm. And just literacy stuff is a process.
2: Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Right? They
1: get excited about the product at the end, but sure. hope, I bet the ones that do really well want to go back and learn more. Like, they want to continue that process. Oh, yeah. You know? Like you know,
2: we have a lot of students who've stayed with us for years because they... Not because they... Um, you know, haven't learned how to read, but they still want that support and yeah. interaction, and and keep want they want to keep practicing. Me,
1: uh, my the guy who taught me in graduate school, his name is Bill Drummond, and he if you, if you Google him; he's amazing. You know, first um, African American Middle East correspondent for the LA Times, in, like seventy two, he founding editor of Morning Edition, like oh, just just worked well. for Jimmy Carter, like he's that guy, right? Mm-hmm. Like, just, uh, and he teaches in San Quentin. He, he teaches at Berkeley, the Graduate School of Journalism, mm-hmm. and then he runs a, a program in San Quentin, and we were talking. He makes the kids uh, – the kids, the, the prisoners write their own obituaries. That's an assignment he wow. always had to do yeah. is, like, we wrote our obituary the first week at Berkeley. Like, mm-hmm. what would it look like? And he wants to publish them as a book mm-hmm. because he, he was sort of sending them to me last night, and he's like, holy shit, like – it's the most personal writing they've ever done yeah right? sure so it's is. very tied into what they've done so it's literacy they they re they brought back the San Quentin newspaper mm-hmm. so they now have an inmate produced newspaper which hadn't been published since the 60s that's awesome um, have you guys thought about doing something like so I, we're try, I'm trying Bill and I are working on how can we print the obituaries hmm. written by the guys in San Quentin who are there for life they're never right. getting out right what does their obituary look like and so that you can read into the lives of what have you guys thought about doing something like that out of the literacy program? Well,
2: we we have had um, some collections of student writings in the past uh, that we've published. um, And uh, we, we basically now have sort of a Uh, student newsletter that goes out to students and tutors where, you know, students write essays or stories or in some cases like reviews of plays Uh because we have a program where we take students to see plays at the IRT and, you know, and and the student tutor will also read the book that the play is based on, you know, whether it's like Diary of Anne Frank or, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird or something like that. And so students, you know, write about that. So we have a lot of student writing. Some we put up on the website, um, but a lot we publish through that. Um, Right now, I mean, the thing that we're most excited about is the Indie Writes books, which is our first real publication that the bookstore is doing that features uh, about 29 different Indiana uh, uh, authors or some near Indiana related, but all all authors who have been really supportive and a part of making the bookstore successful. And so that book's coming out this fall. We're really thrilled about that. It's just a a great collection of uh, some really neat work of fiction, nonfiction. There's some essays. There's some poems. There's some puzzles. (laughs) It's a pretty cool thing. Uh, You know, John Green is in there, Dan Wakefield, Barb Shoup, um, the Puzzle Master Will Shorts, uh, you know, Susan Neville, Kathy Day. I mean, the list just goes on and on. Ben Winters. I mean, lots of great authors that have uh, contributed to this book. So is that
1: sort of like the next Thing that you guys are going to do. Not obviously, you're not going to be a publishing house, but like beginning to look at how you can move.
2: Well, you know, I mean, I
1: the technology's here, right? Like Lightning Source and places like that. You can do
2: well. I think that um, you know, I mean, bookstores have a great tradition in terms of being publishers. I mean, whether it's you know Shakespeare and Company or City Lights or what have you, you know, that have you know been involved in publishing in the past. And I think it's it's absolutely appropriate and. A very cool thing for Indie Reads Books to be uh, a publisher. So yeah, I, I my hope is that um, you know we'll start with this first collection, this anthology, uh, Indie Writes Books, a book lovers anthology, and that'll be our first one. But my hope is that we'll you know be publishing at least you know one book every year, maybe. That's awesome.
1: Well, I'm sorry that we didn't even get to talk about baseball. We've been doing it for <laughs> about 45 minutes. Thank you.
2: Oh, you're welcome. Absolutely. <laughs>
1: There you have it. That's our conversation with Travis. He's got his fingers on the pulse of everything that's happening going on around Indianapolis. He really is a renaissance man in just about every sense of the word. What we didn't get to talk to, which I'm really sad about, uh, is his obsession with baseball and stadiums. Um, We spent a good 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes before we uh, started recording talking about that. Um, He's a huge baseball fan, which in my book makes him number one. Make sure you go to IndieReadsBooks.org where you can read all about the bookstore where we do everything, um, where we do all of our events, um, but also sort of the heart and soul of what is beginning to happen here in Indianapolis. And if you don't live in Indianapolis, you can go and check it out and see the kinds of things that we are doing here and that you should be doing as well. You can also go to org, which is the parent organization, and that's where you can find out all the information um, about uh, the book that is coming out soon um, the adult literacy programs and all of that kind of fun stuff. Indie Writes Books is the name of the book that's coming out. Uh, it will be, I think it's available sometime um, at the end of September, but I don't exactly know. But Indie Reads. Dot org. That's where you can go to find out about that. If you're interested in the downtown writers jam, we have, uh, just a few spots open, le- uh, for authors. It's really been filling up. We've been getting a lot of good feedback and lots of folks that we're very excited about. That's happening Wednesday, November 12th. You can go to the website into the events section. Um, we have Trey Dowell, um, from, he's got a new book called The Protectors coming out. So Simon and Schuster will be there. Erica T. Worth um, with Curbside Splendor Books. And I actually just started reading her memoir last night. It's really good. Uh, Lynn Jones from Ball State. We have Angela Jackson Brown. Um, she's at Ball State, um, but she has a book out from We Do Publishing. I have, uh, a couple other young first-time authors, Sarah Narwald, uh, Ace Fradini. Um, and it looks like we're going to have another one, although she's not confirmed just yet. But you can go to thegeekypress.com and into events, and you will find out all the information that you need to know about the Downtown Riders Jam Volume 2. Check back here. We'll have new podcasts up over the course of the next few weeks. Hopefully we'll get some of this administration out of here. Get back to writing, doing the thing that we love the most. Until then, have a good day. We'll see you around.
0: Listen and subscribe to the latest season of Undertow, The Harrowing, a Storyglass production presented by Realm, available wherever you get your podcasts.
1: The thing that I fought tooth and nail to bring my son into is Dungeons and Dragons. That is the ultimate solution to parenthood. I'm Alexis Ohanian. In my podcast, Business Dad, I'm hoping to open up the conversation about balancing careers and family. I talked to Rain Wilson. I
2: wanted to learn more about Rain's advice to play D&D with your kids. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.